Hello, and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. My guest today is the thriller writer, author coach and poet, Sophie Hanna. I wanted to talk to Sophie about many things. Her career as an international best-selling thriller writer of books such as Little Face, The Carrier and The Monogram Murders. Her work with the Agatha Christie estate. What got her into writing and how she helps writers with her dream author coaching programme. This was more than we could fit into the time available, so we had to save crime writing, the Christie estate, and Sophie's special tips for planning for part two, which I'll be releasing soon. In part one, we discuss the essential urge to write. Sophie explains having to fight to do a typing course as a teenager, and why stuffing envelopes and cataloguing library cards were the perfect jobs for someone with powerful ambition. She describes the good bits, such as what happened when she released a collection of rhyming poetry, and got a letter out of the blue from Trinity College, Cambridge, and the tough bits, such as the years and years it took to get her first novel published. Over those years, Sophie learned a lot. She tells me about her dream author programme, how it helps writers to deal with negative feelings and find your own self-belief and validation. You will feel Sophie's positivity, so I'm not surprised that she can help authors learn to enjoy the process, right here, right now, despite however many rejections the industry may throw your way. Buckle up, we have a lot to talk about. We recorded this episode in June 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Sophie, welcome to Pre-Published. Thank you, thank you for inviting me on. I am thrilled that you're here. Um, I don't normally start with a fangirl moment, but I have to because uh, one of the things that, that got me into writing for children, as I originally did, is, is my passion for getting children reading. And I wrote a lot of young adult novels because, uh, partly because th there seems to be an age in secondary school where, you know, reading sort of drops off for so many teenagers, particularly when they're getting into GCSEs and it all becomes very stressful. And, and that had happened to my elder stepdaughter, Emily, and she kind of stopped reading. And, and then suddenly she went from nothing to really fat novels. And the thing that kicked her off was you. So thank you so much. It was Little Face, I think. Um, oh, so she, wow. she got into nothing to fairly dark thrillers. Um, and, and it was great. And, you know, and now she's a teacher and, and she reads and it's brilliant. Um, so I'm so pleased to know that I got her into reading. How old was she when she read Little Face? Uh, I can't remember exactly, 14 or 15, I would say. Oh, okay, so old enough for a proper, I mean, it's quite dark and disturbing little face, but clearly she she wasn't put off by that. She was up for it, yes. I mean, I, I tend to think to, that children self-edit and they, they, they kind of, yeah. they read what they're ready for and don't read what they're not ready for. So yeah, I was with the programme and it all worked out fine. So thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I then read Little Face myself, and it, it's always stuck with me. It's it's such a disturbing book, as of course you designed it to be. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm interested in, in how you got into it all. I mean, that was that's how I discovered Sophie Hannah, the writer, was 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 through the thrillers, and I assumed that's how you'd started. But of course, you were a published poet before that, weren't you? Yeah, so, I mean, ever since very early childhood, I always liked writing. It was always my main hobby as a kid. As soon as I knew how to write, as soon as I could literally form words and, you know, write them down, 
I was pretty much writing, you know, little little rhyming poems. I was very keen on rhyming poetry. I still am. Um, but I was, also, <laughs> I was also writing little stories and um, and it just very quickly and at a very young age became a, a quite, well, a hobby that I was very passionate about. I remember, you know, in primary school, I would write poems. I would send them to local magazines and newspapers and think about trying to get them published. And I had all these, um, I think they were kind of like exam script books. My dad was a university lecturer. And he used to bring home kind of old exam, the kind of lined A4 booklets that, that were designed for students to write their exam question essays in. Um, and any, any that didn't, any that weren't sort of like smart enough and proper enough to be used for the exams would, were like the rejects and he would bring those home. And I would turn them into little poetry collections by writing my poems in them and I, then I did loads of illustrations. And so I was like producing volumes of poetry um, and it was a real sort of passion of mine. And then I was also writing mystery stories because by this point I had discovered Enid Blyton's Secret Seven books. That was one of mine as well. Yep, yeah, and also her five find outer books. I was oh. never, I was never super keen on the famous five because they were much more adventure and I was always all about the mystery and I still am it's like that is why I love reading crime fiction it's why I love writing it I'm not actually particularly interested in crime I mean you know I sometimes am but the thing that really sort of gets me excited is a mystery and the promise of a solution and that thing of not knowing and being desperate to find out and then finding out so I was always, always from a very young age writing poetry that rhymed and scanned and mystery stories. And that was what I thought I wanted to write. And that was what I always wrote right through my teenage years. At university, I was writing poetry. I was writing mystery stories. And it just so happened that my poetry was kind of presentable sooner than my fiction was. So at the exact at the exact moment that I was having poems accepted for publication and publishers saying, you know, we'd really like to do a book of these poems and things were going really well on the poetry front. At the same time, the novels I was writing and sending to publishers were being rejected quite rightly because they were, they were very immature and not at all publishable. Um, but it wasn't that I started off as a poet then became a mystery oh, writer. Yeah, I've always been both. I just became publishable as a poet much sooner. So then, um, I, I, so your, your your mother's been a, Adele Garris has been a, a guest on the the podcast, which was fantastic. One of the most prolific people that I've talked to. So you presumably grew up with a writer in the house. With writing was just a thing that people did. It must have seemed quite natural to you, I guess. Yeah, so my mum, I mean, she wasn't always a writer, but she started writing children's books when I was probably about, I mean, she'd know the exact time, but, you know, I was certainly still a relatively young kid when she started writing, and then she carried on writing. Obviously, I knew that was what she did, and um, I read her books, and yeah, I think it does really normalise it. If there's somebody in the house who just does a thing, especially like... You know, when you're a teenager and you think other people's mums and dads are super glamorous and exciting 
and your mum and dad are just like the ordinary people at home who make dinner and aren't that exciting you know so I just sort of thought oh being a writer is just something you can do if you want to it's you know just a normal kind of job to have um and I think it does really help to make you think that things like that are possible I remember when I first got together with my husband and we went for the first time to visit his dad uh, in a new house and we were looking around the house and I was going, oh, this is lovely. This is so nice. And his dad said, yeah, it is a nice house. Obviously, we're going to have to move the stairs because the layout. And I was like, is this man insane? What does he mean? Move the stairs. And then I found out from my husband that actually his dad had moved stairs many times before. And he came from a family in which people moved into houses and then changed everything around, including the basic structure of the house. Whereas... For me, moving the stairs was and remains an impossible thing because no one in my family had ever done it. Whereas being a writer, because I'd seen my mum doing it and I knew it was a thing one could do, it just felt like a sort of natural, a natural thing to do. Having said that, I never for even a second imagined that I would make a living from doing it, which is strange as well. And I think, well, I think... It wasn't that I'd thought about it and thought other people can, but I can't. My thoughts never even got that far. It was almost like I just assumed this is my hobby. This is my passion. This is what I love doing. And also I'll need to have a job to pay the bills. And I just never really thought any further than that. But I remember as I got to sort of university age, and got even more passionate about my writing, and I was absolutely determined to be published. So I, I thought, you know, I had a definite ambition to get published and have people read my stuff, but I never associated that with like having it as a career that as it were earned, earned you enough money to live on. I just, I think because I probably thought that the number of even published writers that that happens to is, is fairly small. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the statistics say it's true. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, the statistics say it's true, but I remember as a, as a sort of late teenager and at university, I started to make concrete plans of how I could pursue my writing and have a job so that I had money. And my plan was basically to find a job that was as easy and boring as possible. I remember thinking to myself, I don't need a lot of money. I just need enough to, to live on in a very basic way, go for the odd takeaway curry. But I wasn't thinking I needed like a hugely high paying job. I just needed like a reasonable job. And I thought if I get one that's easy and boring, then I'll be able to do it all very quickly, leave it behind in the office when I clock off for the day. And I'll have lots of mental energy to devote my writing. So I deliberately, like I didn't, all through school and college when people were saying have you thought about careers I mean I didn't even dare tell them that I did that you know I positively didn't want anything that could be considered a career that might rival my hobby of writing. So did, did that happen at all did, did you end up doing something or, or did did the poetry and then the, the mysteries take off yeah. in time to catch you? No no it absolutely happened I made my plan and it worked brilliantly I got the most easy job in the world. So I, I, at Sixth Form College, I'd learned to touch type. 
And I had to kind of fight for my right to be able to learn to touch type because we all had to do, I mean, like everyone, I went to a, a brilliant, actually, a Catholic sixth form college called Zaverian in Manchester. And as, as well as our A-levels, we all had to do a subsidiary kind of extra thing. And one of the things that was offered was typing with a very, very just the most brilliant teacher. She was like a sergeant major. You couldn't get away with anything. She was so strict and so exacting and everyone wanted to impress her and learn to type in about five seconds flat. Cause it was like, if you didn't learn quickly she'd be cross with you. Um, she was called Mrs. Ashton and she was amazing. Anyway, so I thought, brilliant. I wanna be a writer. I wanna be writing novels. It would be amazingly convenient if I could touch type. So I signed up for typing. Next thing I knew, my parents and I were summoned to a meeting uh, at which someone senior with a furrowed brow said, come now, typing is an option for non-intellectual students and you're intellectual. I mean, I don't know why they thought I was, but like, I mean, my, my, my well, actually they weren't even GCSEs. My O-level results had been like, okay, but nothing special because I'd never done any work really apart from on my writing, like all through school every parent's evening, all through college, all through school, my parents had heard the same thing over and over again. She's very bright, but she does no work. But that was because I didn't care about any of the work that was going on at school. I wanted to work on my writing. Um, so yeah, so they said, no, 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 don't do typing as your subsidiary, do a German O-level, German language O-level. And I said, I don't want to do a German language O-level. I want to do typing. I'm gonna be a writer. I wanna be able to type up my books. And my mum and dad were fully supporting me as well. They were like, she's writing all these books, even though she's only 16. Like, it really does seem to make sense. So the college let me do typing. Um, but yeah, so I was I was so sort of, um, you know, that it, it was such a coherent plan in my mind that I would get this boring, easy job that I think I just made it happen. Uh, so I heard about a job that had come up and it was being being a sort of, there was a library where I lived in Manchester. It was an antiquarian library that was also a gentleman's club. And it was in a very dark, very old, very beautiful, quiet building. No, it's kind of institution that no one even knew it was there really, unless they were a member of it. And it had a card catalog of all of its books. And I think they'd got some money or some funding to hire people to convert the card catalog into an online database. This was in 1994. So was it or was it 2000? No, it was 1994. So this was, you know, everything was still on paper and moving over towards online. So my job was basically to sit there with a pile of cards, each one with a book's name and details and ISBN on, and just input the details from the cards onto the computer. And it was the easiest <laughs> job in the world. I've and done jobs like that, blissful. I love them. My first ever sort of, well, this was my first proper job being a card cataloger. And then later on, I went on to be an admin assistant at the library. So I, I was promoted, but even that was still really, really easy. But my first ever job of any significant kind was um, in my gap year between A-levels and university. I was an envelope stuffer Ooh, right. for Manchester 
the Manchester Theatres Limited, the Palace Theatre and the Opera House. Yeah. And I and about three other envelope stuffers, we sat in this big room, each of us at one side of a table, and on the table were huge piles of envelopes and huge piles of leaflets about theatrical shows. And we just had to, every day we'd go in and the boss would say, right, these four leaflets in these envelopes. And we would sit there chatting away, having coffees, listening to the radio, stuffing envelopes. It was heaven on a stick. And I felt the same way about the card catalogue. I mean, I just love it if someone says, here's a really easy thing and you can just do it mechanically. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> So how, yeah. how long were you doing that kind of thing before the writing took off and you began to see that it might sustain you? Even when it took off, I didn't think it, I mean, I just, it wasn't that I didn't think it would, it was just it never arose. I, in my head, work, paid work and writing were just, I just didn't really put them together. One was a hobby, never expected it to pay its way at all. And the other was what I had to do to earn a living. Um, but they kind of happened at the same time. So almost exactly at the same time that I started this cataloging job, my first poetry, my first full length poetry book was published by Carcanet Press. And because the poems in it, almost all, I mean, with the exception of maybe one or two, all the poems rhymed and scanned and made sense. So they were, although the subject matter was incredibly contemporary, so they weren't in any like old fashioned and these and thous or any of that, but formally and metrically, they were traditional poems. They weren't free verse. Uh, because of that, and because quite a few of them were, were humorous, they kind of met, had a big impact. So people knew quite quickly after I'd published this my first poetry book, which was called The Hero and the Girl Next Door, it kind of it had an impact in the poetry world. So almost immediately, it started to do quite well. I mean, it sold quite a few cop quite a few more copies than most poetry books sell. I mean, obviously by best-selling novel standards, that's still really not a lot, but by poetry standards it was. And festival organisers, literary festival organisers started wanting to book me. And so they were ringing the library every day. And my boss was getting quite annoyed because I remember her saying to me, I feel as if I'm your secretary. Someone wanting to book me for a festival. So all that was going on. And I was trying to do this admin job at the same time as, you know, using all the time off I could get to go to all these festivals all over the place. Um, now, during this whole time, I wasn't writing novels much because I was, I was prioritising poetry. Basically, I had decided that since the poetry was going so well and the novels were getting rejected, I sort of thought, clearly, I'm destined to be a poet and not a novelist. So fine, I will just do that. That's fine by me. So I was just being a poet and not being a novelist trying to make it work with the library and dashing around to literary festivals. It wasn't hugely working. I mean, I liked it, but my boss was kind of like, yeah, she's not really. And also as the writing took off, I was kind of, I, I, I wasn't neglecting the work. I always did everything I should do, but I, I spent large parts of the day at the office working on my own writing, having done the official work in as short a time as possible. Um, so I wasn't like maybe the library's ideal employee. 
Um, anyway, so while all of this was happening, I got a letter out of the blue, like literally out of the blue, almost like something in a sort of Thomas Hardy or Charles Dickens novel, this cream embossed envelope arrived looking very important. I still remember vividly the look of that envelope. I opened it and it was from Trinity College, Cambridge, saying that they had, and I can't remember exactly, they'd either long listed me or short listed me. Somehow I'd ended up on a list of people that they wanted to consider for this, for this fellowship that they offer every two years. And it's called Fellow Commoner in Creative Arts. And it's basically... It's basically Trinity's way of being patrons of the arts. They, they every two years, they find a young-ish or new-ish artist, either a writer, a composer, a painter, anybody from the arts who's doing creative work. But I think they ask around and get recommendations of who they should look at and invite to apply. And I'd been recommended, so they'd read my first poetry book, The Hero and the Girl Next Door, and they'd loved it. And so they wanted to invite me to apply. And I was really thrown by this at first. I was like, what? I haven't applied. Like, if you don't apply for a job, then you don't do like this. There's, I was like, there's something weird about this. What's going on? So I was kind of inclined not to do anything about it and just to pretend it hadn't happened. And my friend at the library, Emma, who I worked with, I showed it to her and I was like, this seems a bit weird. I probably, I'm probably going to ignore it. And she was like, you cannot ignore this. This is Trinity College, Cambridge. This looks like an amazing opportunity. You should apply. Well, not apply because, the, you know, they don't have an applications process. But seeing as I was on the list, she thought I should stay on that list. Uh, so, I was like, yeah. um, so then I was invited for an interview. I think it got whittled down to a short list, having been a long list, and I was still on it. I got invited for interview. Um, and after the interview, the chair of the Creative Arts Committee came to see me and said, we all thought you were amazing, but we can't give you the job because one of the other candidates who we shortlisted is literally a musical genius. Like, <laughs> this is really funny. Like, they literally said, this, like, one of the other candidates is a musical genius. Like, people think he's like the new Mozart. He's going to be as important for musical history as Mozart. Okay. And we can't, it, it, he was like, we can't not offer it to the new Mozart, which sounded reasonable. I was like, no, you really can't. The new Mozart has to take priority. <laughs> <laughs> but they said to me, but we liked you as much as him, even though you're not the new Mozart. And would you consider doing the job next time it comes up two years later oh, okay and I was like yeah once the new Mozart has had his stint <laughs> I will, I'll be happy to turn up then so basically I ended up being the next fellow commoner in creative arts after the new Mozart um and that was just I mean that was a life-changing experience I mean Trinity College Cambridge is just, to me, it's like actual heaven. Like I arrived there, everyone was so lovely. I was just so grateful that they had this fellowship, you know, that, that basically they were paying me an academic salary. They were giving me amazing rooms to live in. I could have all my meals in college if I wanted to. They gave me an office. 
They gave me a books allowance. They were just like, it was just incredible. And I remember saying, okay, so this is amazing and I love it already, but like, what do I have to, like, what, you haven't asked me to do anything. <laughs> yes. Where's the, where's the me doing work part? And they said, no, no, this is us sponsoring artists so that they can do their art. So you don't have to do anything. We just want to give you the opportunity to work on your writing. Uh, so, of course, being quite contrary, I immediately decided I wanted to do loads of things for the college. Because if someone says to me, you don't have to do anything, we're just going to give you money. That's when I want to do something. You know, it's like, let me do as many things as I can. So I did lots of readings. I organized writing groups. I, I, I did whatever I could to sort of promote and represent writing and uh, creative things in the college. And I just had the most blissful two years. Um, and it's still, I mean, I think I, I then many years later moved back to Cambridge with my family, even though there was no sort of practical need or reason for me to do so. And I think it's partly because I just fell in love with everything about Cambridge, not only Trinity College, but also the city. Um, and I, I just sort of wanted to be able to like, be there again and so when my husband gave up his job we were like right let's move back to Cambridge but basically that was the that was the thing so when I got the job at Trinity I suddenly had all this time to work on my writing I was still writing the poetry but I thought I really want to write novels you know I'd always wanted to write fiction as well and so that was when I wrote my first two novels that weren't crime novels. So before I published Little Face, which was my first crime novel, I had published three. Um, I don't know what you'd call them, kind of um, black comedy, like sort of weird, eccentric comedies of manners, but, but contemporary. Um, and they were... I mean, these novels didn't sell particularly well at all. Uh, a couple of, well, two of the first two sold not very well in a normal way. The third one really, really didn't sell well. But I can, I, like, I can see why that is because all three of them are extremely eccentric. So like the pool of potential people who might read those three novels and think this is just my cup of tea is small it's basically limited to people who are as weird as me of which there are not many um, but I, I I just sort of thought I want to use these two years at Trinity to to become a published novelist so I did and when the first one when I heard that the first one was going to be published I was just on cloud nine because I'd tried you know all through my teenage years and all through university I'd tried to get novels published and they hadn't been good enough so I think Trinity believing in me and supporting me to the extent that they did gave me the courage to think I can write a good novel even if I haven't yet and I'm jolly well going to. That's a, such a lovely thing for, for listeners to this podcast to hear I hope. Um, it's very much the sort of people that, that it's designed for which is you know it can take years and years and years and I mean I think with every book that we write we think we hope this is the one and at the end of this year it will be ready and then I will send it out and this will be the time that I break through and then it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and for me that was a 10-year process and I don't think that's particularly unusual and and it is and you know and I and I, I mentor students and I work with people and and I, I just see you know if you wait long enough and you are resilient enough and persistent enough that it can come good and it, it, it is good to hear that 
that happen for people that um, it is worth keeping going if it's something that you've just got to do. I mean, were you one of those people, I mean, you sound to be very much are, that if, if you're not writing stories down or writing poems down, you can't function properly. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I can't function properly, but it's just something that I have always wanted to do for as long as I can remember. I would always want to do, I, I can't imagine life without that thing of, oh, I really want to write this and, and then imagining it and then starting work on it. I mean, I'm, I'm a very, very happy person just by nature. Like yeah. I am. I am extremely happy 99.9% .9 of the time, even when there's no reason to be like, I just am. So if someone said there is a law and nobody can write anything, I could probably entertain myself in some other way, yeah, but- you're right. It's interesting, but, I, I've been right for a while, but I would find the stories would just be speckling up inside me. Oh, 100%. I would just have stories going around in my head and I would, you know, I'd tell them to myself if I couldn't tell them to, to anyone else. So yeah, I do feel, I guess, that an essential outlet for me is being able to make up stories and write them and, and, and just create, you know, create stories in the world that didn't exist before. I think that's incredible. Like if you, if you write a book, it's not going to be the same as anyone else's book. No one else could have written that book that you're going to write. And then, then, it, then it's real in the world. And then millions of people can read it. It's just like an incredible thing to do. So, so yeah, I guess for me, it is fairly essential. Um, but what you said before about it can take a long time and, and all of that, that is so true. And the crucial thing, I think, is that if it does take a long time, a lot of people interpret that as something's going wrong, it's not working. And because they make, I mean, I, I run a coaching program for writers called Dream Author, and, and a lot of what I'm about to say now is um, are concepts that I we study in detail and practice and coach on in Dream Author, because it is the key thing that makes the difference. So if you write a book and it gets rejected and then you write another one and it gets rejected and you write another one that gets rejected, the difference between ultimate success and ultimate failure is the difference between the writer who thinks, damn, another disappointment. I guess it's not gonna be this one either that I succeed with. Right, what next? On to the next one. I don't know which one it's gonna I mean, that was what I was like, right? I was like, I really hoped it would work with this book. It didn't. I'm devastated. I'm miserable. You know, you do the whole suffering thing because you're disappointed that this one, even this one, wasn't the one that worked, right? But I never, I never for a second even considered making that mean that I would never get published. It was always like, oh, another one that didn't work. Right. What on to the next one? What's next? Because I I just never made it mean. I haven't got what it takes. I'm never going to succeed. Um, it's too hard. I should give up. And that that's the key thing. So even if it's taking longer than you think it should or hoped it would, which it usually does for most people, you can always, even after a really disappointing rejection or, or a real letdown or a real devastating blow, you always have the option of thinking, okay, well, it wasn't this time, but it will be another time. 
I will make this work in the future. And just because you've had a disappointment now does not in any way mean that you have to stop believing in the success you want to create in the future. It just, there's no connection. You could have written a really terrible book now that everyone said no to. That doesn't necessarily mean that your next book, I mean, I know this because I wrote many terrible books that didn't get published, but that didn't mean that I couldn't write a good book because eventually, and because of those very rejections and what I learned from each one, I worked out all the things I was doing wrong and I started to not do them wrong. And so actually those rejections and those painful moments, without them, we're, we probably don't have the grit we need to become the better writer we need to become. So what I always say to my, my dream authors, as I call them, is when you've had a very disappointing blow, and let's say you're, you've had to give up on a book and well, I actually don't believe you ever have to give up, but that's there's lots of conceptual stuff in Dream Author, which is too complicated to explain now. But basically, let's say you've put a book to one side for the time being. What I always say is, of course, you're going to feel disappointed because you didn't get the result you wanted. And that's fine. We don't want to try and avoid negative feelings because we just can't. It's part of being a human who tries to do things that we're going to have some negative emotion. But the key is, A, not to make that negative emotion mean, oh, well, so I should give up in order to avoid more negative emotion, and not to make things worse than they are by thinking, because I feel so bad, that must mean I'm doomed to fail, and imagining that the future results are going to be dictated by the past results, because they don't have to be. So in, the, in an ideal world, you feel disappointed. You allow that feeling for as long as it needs to be there. You process it. And then you think, OK, what can I learn from this? What do I want to do next? And your belief in your writing and your love for your writing and the belief in the success you're going to create eventually does not have to be even a, a tiny bit less. That, that can be as strong as ever. And that was how it was for me that while, you know, I remember one day I was crying on a platform at Ely Station because my age, my then agent had said, um, oh, no, this manuscript's in terrible shape. You'll need to rewrite it completely if it's going to stand a chance. And I had thought I really thought it was great. I was wrong about that. She was right. But <laughs> I had thought at the time that it was fine. Um, and I remember feeling terrible. But but that terrible feeling did not in any way um decrease my belief in my ability to succeed eventually so I was just like I feel terrible right now because I didn't get the results I want but I still a hundred percent believe that I'm going to get to be a published novelist and I'm still enthusiastic about it and if it isn't going to be this book it's going to be the next one and what's the next thing I can do to keep moving towards my goal but so many writers especially writers who haven't yet had any validation from the book industry, like they haven't yet got an agent, they haven't yet got a publisher, that's when they need more than ever to be able to create that belief and validation in themselves. They have to do it. They have to be what I call it, your own PFB. You have to be your own PFB, which means passionate first believer. And you can always be that 
And you can always remain that no matter what the book industry is doing in terms of validating or not validating. And it's essential that writers learn how to do that because it's the ones who do that and keep believing, even though no one in the industry at that point is cheerleading for them. Those are the ones who are able to keep going until they create the success they want. Yeah, I've, I've always felt that too, absolutely, that it, it is that the people who think perhaps not this one when they get bad news, who are the writers, um, and the people who think, oh, this was the one and therefore nothing. They, they were the writers of perhaps one book, but they're not writers in their soul the way that writers are. Um, and Yeah, and, and there's, the, there's this other thing, which is I call it, in Dream Author, I call it success expectation. Um, and most writers are horrified when you say that what's afflicting them is something called success expectation, because they say, but I don't expect to succeed. This is my whole problem. I expect to fail. And that's why I don't want to try because it's all so upsetting. But the thing is, I say to them, it's, it's not that you expect to succeed. What it is, is conditional tense success expectation. So most writers think something along the lines of, and they maybe don't realize they think it, but they think something along the lines of, Maybe I'll fail with the first book I write, and maybe I'll even fail with the second book I write, but surely by the third book, I'll have sorted out all my writing flaws and that'll be the one that gets published. And I see this over and over again in Dream Author is that someone will have one knockback and they'll think, okay, it's fine. Writers have knockbacks, I can still believe, I can still try. And then they have a second one and they're like, okay, all right, I'm sticking with it for now. And then they have a third one. It's like, right, that clearly, I mean, I, I was willing to believe that it would all work out well when four people said no to my book. And I was kind of willing when eight people said no, but now I've just got my 12th rejection from an agent. Clearly, it's never going to work. Clearly, I should give up. Clearly, I haven't got the talent. And that's, that's when you know that without even realizing it, they've had this um, subconscious conditional success expectation where they're thinking, I may not succeed at first, but if I'm going to succeed at all, then it probably should be within the first 12 or so agents I approach. And that's not true. That's not true. So then I'll say, look, what if you were just wrong about that? Which you clearly were. You thought it was going to happen within 12 submissions. It didn't. There's no reason to make that mean that it isn't going to happen at all, because why shouldn't it happen with the 14th agent? Or why, why isn't it the case that maybe all 12 agents have spotted a flaw in the book, which you can now fix because they've all told you why they're not taking the book. You can now fix it or you can tell a different story or you can do this or you can do that. And then the results will be completely different and this is the great thing that enables writers if they want to to be able to keep believing is that it's just words that we put on paper and we can put different words on paper and when we put different words on paper and send them to different people or do different things with them well then of course we're not going to get the same results we got before because we're, it's different words so, I mean, if I sent the first novel I ever wrote, which was incredibly immature, I wrote it when I was 16, 
and it was called Lovers and Losers. And it was about a girl trying to choose between two boyfriends, uh, heavily autobiographical. Um, if I sent that book now to every agent in town, they'd all turn it down because it's a terrible book. But if I then um, took out all the words from Lovers and Losers and put in a load of words that were as good as like words written by Hilary Mantel, then it would be a different story. And this is what writers, I mean, obviously that's an extreme example, but there's never any reason to think, oh, well, this isn't working out. And when you're in that difficult bit where you think, oh, it's such a long process and I've had so many knockbacks, there's no need to suffer at that point and think, oh, it's all going wrong. I'm not enjoying this. It's just pain, pain, pain. The key is to start enjoying the process. The key is to start enjoying the writing and the dreaming and the planning and the hoping and the strategizing. You can enjoy it right now, even before you get the result you want, as long as you don't believe that everything's going wrong for you. And actually, it's never true that everything's going wrong for you. What's true is you're learning and learning and learning. And yes, it is painful, but what if that pain and the disappointments is exactly the right track that you need to be on in order to get to where you're going to create amazing success? I don't think I could have written a book as good and successful as Little Face. Little Face was my first crime novel. It became a massive word of mouth success. I don't think I could have written a book good enough to do that if I hadn't been through precisely the 10 years of writing bad books, hearing that they were bad, working on them, hearing that they were a bit better, all the, all the disappointment, all the crying on Ely Station, like that was the exact process that I needed to go through to get better and evolve to the next level of, of me as a writer. So if writers can remember to think, actually this might be difficult and it might be uncomfortable and I do have to be my own passionate first believer for the time being, but this is the right track. I am on the right track. Uh, it's not that it's not going well for me. It's just this is the path. So how, how does Dream Author work? How, I mean, obviously people can, can find you via the website, but um, who are you, who are you aiming to help with all of this fantastic encouragement that you can give? I designed Dream Author to help any writer or anyone who wants to write. So some of, we have members of every possible kind. We have mega, mega best-selling writers in Dream Author who the world would say, why do they need to be in a writing coaching program? They're doing amazingly well but they join because they're thinking, everyone seems to think I'm this huge success. Why do I still feel like a failure? Um, so there's, there's that category of member. Then there are um, all kinds of published writers, lots of debut writers who've just had their first book published, lots of people who are still working on books that they want to get published. And so we have some members who really want to write, but don't have the confidence to sort of even give themselves permission. So in terms of, and it's fully international. So we have members from all over the world and it's all online. So there's coaching webinars, there's podcasts, there's exercises, there's workbooks. It's very, very immersive uh, and you can do it completely at your own pace. So there's no pressure about keeping up with any timetable. Um, but, but the thing, 
that defines really or determines whether someone needs dream author or not is are they in any way kind of getting in the way of their own potential writing happiness or success by thinking and believing things which are holding them back uh, so for example um, I'll tell you the story that actually made me think right I am creating this coaching program I had breakfast with a writer friend of mine and we hadn't met for ages uh, so this was kind of like a bit of a, a reunion after a few years and I was like how's it going how's the writing what's going on and he he immediately his face kind of contorted he looked miserable as anything and he told me this very miserable tale about how after one of his books had been a huge success the next one really hadn't and there were reasons for this his editor had left things that you know it wasn't because the, or as far as I know it wasn't because the book wasn't good but just various sort of practicalities happened and mainly his editor leaving he then went to an editor who wasn't keen on his work anyway the next book didn't sell at all and so that publisher dropped him and so he was incredibly miserable and depressed and he was like I feel like such a failure I feel guilty I keep apologizing to my wife for letting her down and uh, I'm, I'm writing another book now but I, I'm not enjoying writing it because I just imagine it coming out and failing um, and I said so I mean he talked at length about how bad he was feeling and I so in terms of the publishing industry though you were dropped by that publisher have you made any, like, are you nearly ready to send this one you're working on now to a publisher? And he kind of went, he realized at that point he'd forgotten to tell me a crucial part of the story. And he went, oh, no, actually the one I'm working on now is the second in a two book contract because I signed, uh, and then he named a sum of money and then he named a big five publisher. Basically, while feeling terribly depressed and guilty and thinking of himself as a failure, he wrote another book and attracted a big money contract from a big five publisher who loved his book and were about to publish it. And now he's working on the other one for them. But he was so attached to his story of I'm a failure and it's all gone wrong for me that he, he, he felt, you know, to him, the reality was that he was a failed writer. And I said to him, I said, right, let me just take the facts out of your story that you've just told me and put them to you in another way. So you left out some of the facts and portrayed yourself as a depressed, failed author. But if I were in your exact situation and the facts were the same, I could think I am a writer who first of all won a big novel writing prize because this was how his career was launched. He won a prize. And this led to him publishing a series of, I don't think best-selling, but highly acclaimed crime novels. Uh, then he had a surprise bestseller that sold something like 750,000 copies. Then there was the book that didn't sell. Then, while feeling depressed and awful, he managed to write another book good enough to attract a big money contract from a big five publisher. So I said, what if I said to you that based on those three facts, winning the competition selling the 750,000 copies and attracting this new contract. What if those facts mean that you are someone who can attract and create massive success over and over again in different ways, even when the circumstances are challenging? Like what, what if that's the story? 
Like, what if that's who you are as a writer? And he just looked at me in complete astonishment, thought about it for a while. He said, you know, if I thought about it like that, then I probably wouldn't be depressed at all. (laughs) I was like, exactly. So so that's a very long-winded way of saying that basically there are some writers, not many, there are some who always make sure that what they're thinking on purpose and what ha- what they're choosing to believe is always working to their advantage in terms of making them feel great, fueling yeah. actions that they want to take in order to create results they want. There are a few writers who just know how to do this off their own bat, but 99% of the writers that I talk to, both established and very, very new, are not in that category. And when you say to them, tell me about the challenges and issues that you face with your writing at the moment, they will tell you what they think is just the objective facts of the situation. They say, oh, it's super hard for me. It's terribly, terribly hard. And I'm almost bound not to succeed and here's why. And they think they're just telling you the facts of the case, but they never are. They're telling you what they're making the facts mean and what they're choosing to believe And my job as, you know, I'm the only coach in Dream Author. It's all me. I coach all of them. There's like regular coaching webinars. Dream Authors ask for coaching any time of the day or night. It's a real passion project for me. So I put a lot of time and effort into it. But they will tell me their tales of woe or why they can't do something, why it's not working. And I will say, let's just separate out the facts from the story you're telling And let's notice that all those thoughts you're choosing to believe are optional. When you say 12 agents have said no, so I just don't think it's ever going to work. That's not a fact. That's what you're choosing to believe. Now, is it possible that you could choose to believe something different that was equally plausible, but that made you feel so much better? So that was what I did with my friend, right? Yeah. I gave him a story that was just as plausible as the one he was thinking. And it made him feel a hundred times better. And most writers don't know how to do that thing of separating their, their, their beliefs and the stories they're telling themselves from the facts of the case. And once you realize that most of our thoughts are optional, you know, I have a concept in Dream Author called thought auditions, which is that if, if a thought pops up in your head, you don't have to just automatically believe it and act as if it's yeah, true. Yeah. Even if you think it over and over again, Instead, you can behave as if you are the casting director of your own thought show. And all kinds of crazy thoughts pop up in our heads all the time. But you can treat each one as if it's come for its audition. You listen to what it has to say and you think, if I believe this thought, how am I going to feel? If the answer is terrible and discouraged, then that that thought which creates that feeling is not going to fuel the actions that you want to take to create whatever writing situation you want to create. So that thought fails its audition. You've listened to it, but you send it on its way. And then you think, right, what do I need to do? Let's say your, your goal is to be, I don't know, a number one best-selling author. Okay. What actions do you need to perform once or regularly what are the things you need to do and maybe do over and over again and what are the things you need to think and believe if you're going to pursue that goal effectively 
And then you choose on purpose to think thoughts and believe thoughts that create those feelings and those actions rather than the thoughts and feelings that are going to discourage you and make you want to give up. Goodness. And, and all of this sounds as if it, it's, it's just the way that you naturally approach your own process. Um, not quite. So, so from the start, from, from when I very first started writing, I would say that I naturally was good at thinking positive, even in the face of disappointment. So that is true. My, my default setting was to be upset for a while. If I got, you know, if I wrote a novel and everyone said, we don't want to publish it, I'd be upset for a while. But my, my natural, like, oh, there's got to be a way to make it work. It's all going to be okay. I'm just naturally very, very sunny natured and optimistic. So that um, enabled me to keep trying despite the painful rejections. I was always, I would never have stopped trying. Even if right now at the age of 49, if I'd never yet published anything, I would still be believing that I would one day. Same because, here. I was going to give myself yeah. till I was 72, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, why not, right? People think there's a downside to believing yeah. in your dream if it might not happen. There is no downside. Whereas there's a massive downside to giving up on your dream if it's still your dream. Like, it's fine to have to change your dream. That's absolutely fine. But to give up on something because you think, oh, it'll never work. People think they're being realistic and protecting themselves from pain by doing that. It's the opposite. They're just choosing the pain in a more definite way straight away rather yes. than, yes. you know, living with the uncertainty and learning. You see, it's just, a, it's just a, a thought habit and a neural pathway. Anyone can do it. We can establish new and different thought patterns so that we are, are more naturally able to think the things we want to think in order to create the great feelings. So I was naturally an optimist. So I think I was a sort of ideal candidate for, for the kind of thing I'm now teaching in Dream Author. But I would say, looking back at my journey to publication, I did a lot of suffering that I needn't have done. When I look back, if I put it this way now, when I'm trying to do something now, that seems a long way off and I'm nowhere near succeeding at, I don't suffer at all. If I get a knockback, I'm like, of course there'll be a knockback, it's fine. I'm definitely gonna succeed eventually. Doesn't bother me at all. Whereas when I was trying to publish books, the disappointment and the suffering was stronger until I cheered up again, it was stronger because temporarily I would make it mean that something bad had happened. Whereas in fact, all those rejections, all that disappointment really needed to happen because all my biggest breakthroughs uh, in terms of like just rising to a higher level of actual writing, just getting better, they only really happened after a big disappointment when I was forced to kind of look at my work and think, what if it's really not good enough? And then I'd be like, oh shit, it isn't good enough. And then I'd improve it. And, you know, so- I think it is another mark of a writer though, isn't it? It's somebody who can learn. Um, it's um, you of course you need to bounce back from from those rejections but but people in the publishing world on the whole kind of know what they're doing so um, there probably is something that can be made better and and you need to have some kind of attitude of 
of building on that, I guess, rather than just bashing them over the head with the same thing time and time again. Well, what, what we do in Dream Author is we, um, we look at what's, if someone's got a problem or they're upset about something, we look at what's happened. So let's say what's happened is, and one's agent has sent a letter saying, I don't think this book works at all. Let's say it's the second book of a two book contract. So the fact of what has happened is an agent has sent a letter saying, I don't think this works at all. Then we, the next stage is what do we want to think about this thing that has happened? And most writers in the moment would think, this is terrible. This means I'm not a good writer. Maybe I should give up. Maybe I should fire my agent. All those kind of dramatic thoughts, which create a lot of suffering. I always encourage dream authors to think, okay, what's the, what is the thought that I could think in this situation that is 100% plausible? Because it has to be plausible. When we choose thoughts on purpose, if they're not plausible, they don't affect us emotionally. So like if I, let's say I thought to myself, I know I want to think positive. So I'm going to think by tomorrow, I'm going to be as best selling as JK Rowling. That's not going to do anything for me emotionally because I just don't believe it, which is fine. I don't need to be as best selling as JK Rowling. But what thought is 100% plausible and activates an emotion in you that's then going to fuel the kinds of behaviors you need to create the goal. So your agent says book two really isn't working with manuscripts in very poor shape. You can think um, even if the manuscript is in really poor shape, it doesn't need to stay that way. Once I know what's wrong with it, I can improve it. And that's already a better thought than, oh no, doom and gloom. Um, the reason I decided I wanted to create a coaching program for writers in particular was that I myself had been, when I created Dream Author for about the past two years before that, I had been a member of a coaching program as a customer, as a client. So my, my, my friend had recommended this coach who wasn't a writing coach. She was a general life coach. And my friend knew that I was interested in psychology. And she said, listen to this podcast. It's not a shrink. It's a life coach. But I think you might like her podcast. I listened to her name is Brooke Castillo. And she runs a, a life coaching school called The Life Coach School. And the podcast is called The Life Coach School. So I started listening to The Life Coach School podcast. And it was just the most amazing thing happened in my brain. I was like, all the kind of things that I had previously thought and said to myself, this is probably me being insanely optimistic or ridiculously determined. Here was this successful American life coach saying all the kind of things that I had instinctively been believing, but not even realizing. It was like she gave me the sort of formal version of what I had intuitively been veering towards in some of my attitudes, if that makes sense. Uh, but she also, she also, her podcast taught me so much more than I'd ever intuited. And she put it all in a really coherent sort of way. So I then joined her coaching program, which is called Self Coaching Scholars. And it just like, all the sort of optimistic tendencies I had where, which had enabled me to do great things. Suddenly I had 
all the sort of framework for it and I was able to like change my life in loads of amazing ways and I put that together with you know my writing you know I realized like as a as an unpublished writer whenever I'd risen to the next level or overcome a hurdle or done something achieved something good it was by employing the exact kind of thinking that Brooke Castillo was talking about on the Life Coach School podcast uh, so I thought, right, I'm going to join scholars, join scholars and got so much out of it. And then I thought, isn't it crazy that there's so many resources and courses for writers and aspiring writers, but there's nothing to do with mindset coaching, how to deal with the psychological and emotional side of being a writer, just all that. So I've, and then it became my passion project to create for writers or anyone who wants to write what I thought, you know, I had a vision for what this coaching program should be. And I thought, if I get this right, it's going to be the best thing any writer could possibly stumble across. And that is what I have done my best to turn it into. Like, it, it's kind of the resource that I think every writer needs. And there is stuff in it. There's a lot in it about how to improve your writing and what exactly you need to do on a practical level to get from agents saying no or publishers saying no to saying yes but it's all approached through the lens of what do we create what results are we creating for ourselves with our thoughts and our feelings amazing well i i normally ask my my guests for tips for writers uh, at the at the end of our conversations but i think there's so much there for people to take away and signing up for dream author and and listening to the podcast sounds like such a great um way to start that i think i'll leave them with that um i was hoping to talk to you about um working with the agatha christie estate and plotting your your novels and things but um i think for, for my listeners um thinking about everything you've said about positive mindset will just be exactly what they need so i'd love it if you could come back perhaps another time to talk about your writing but um but i think that'll probably do us for today and thank you so much sophie it's been brilliant you're welcome I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast, and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.